Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective and we're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequencies 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 11925 kHz on the 19 meter band to West Africa as well as DSTV's audio bouquet Channel 802. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Tabiso Luhoko and Figile Lingwati. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, DRC opposition leader calls on SADC to ensure successful elections. Trump, Kim, summit draws mixed reaction in the U.S. And events to mark Albinism Awareness Day get underway across the world. In economics news, Africa Rail Conference is underway in Johannesburg. And in sports news, FIFA to vote on Morocco and North America 2026 World Cup bids. But first up, the news with Anne Moussa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Moussa. The International Criminal Court has ruled that former Congolese Vice President Jean-Pierre Bemba be released immediately following his acquittal last week by appeals court judges at the Hague-based tribunal. Bemba will be handed over to neighboring Belgium where his wife and five children live. He's been in the ICC detention center since his arrest in 2008. Bemba was convicted in 2016 of war crimes and crimes against humanity. The militia he commanded committed mass murder and rape in neighboring Central African Republic. The conviction was overturned on appeal last Friday. Bemba still faces a possible five-year sentence on a separate charge of witness tampering. That hearing will take place next month. Equatorial Guinea's President Teodora Obiang-Ingema has called for national dialogue. The move comes after a thwarted coup and a crackdown on the opposition. In a speech broadcast nationally on state television, Ngema said the talks would take place next month. He also called on Guineans living abroad for political reasons to return to their birth country to look for all-embracing inclusive strategies. Equatorial Guinea has been ruled with an iron fist by Obiang since August 1979. Kenya's health ministry has confirmed that 75 people have died from cholera in the past five months. The ministry says 4,954 people had been infected with the disease that was first reported in the country in January. 19 countries have been affected. Nine of the counties have managed to successfully contain the outbreak, while 10 currently continue to report new cases of cholera on a daily basis. Kenya's Ministry of Health says the government continues to provide technical and logistical support to the affected regions. French President Emmanuel Macron has accused Italy of being irresponsible by refusing to take in a rescue ship with more than 600 migrants on board. His spokesperson Benjamin Gravor says the president has reminded Italy that international maritime law requires the nearest country to help a vessel in distress. Gravor says Italy failed to live up to its responsibilities. In this incident, Italy has taken over from the Libyan authorities because the ship, the Aquarius, was in Libyan waters. But Italy has failed to follow through on this process. This shows a kind of cynicism and a lack of responsibility on the part of the Italian government when faced with a dramatic humanitarian situation.
And finally, North Korea's state news agency says President Kim Jong-un has accepted an invitation from his American counterpart Donald Trump to visit the United States. Trump says the North Korean leader is welcome to visit the White House when the time is right. The BBC's Chris Butler has more. The Singapore summit's joint statement committed North Korean and American officials to further talks at the earliest possible opportunity. It's expected those discussions will be led by the U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. But after their historic first meeting, it appears that there are also plans for another direct encounter between Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un. Some critics will be concerned that it could provide another publicity coup for the North Korean leader. And that's the news. It lands at 8.30 Central African time. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorna. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Swiss chocolate wouldn't be Swiss chocolate without African cocoa. <laughs> you know, it's funny when you think about it that way because you realize just how important Africa is to the global economy. And as long as we are deemed to be inferior by the community out there, nothing's ever going to change. I believe it's one of the uh, ancient Greek philosophers who said that when we teach, we'll learn twice. Hello, Africa. Welcome to 1000 African Voices on Channel Africa. 1000 African Voices every Saturday morning at 9am with repeats on Sundays between 10 and 11 as well as on Monday morning between 3 and 4 Central African Time 1000 African Voices with me Awurengwi C on Channel Africa the voice of the African Renaissance broadcasting from an African perspective The leader of the opposition party in the Democratic Republic of Congo, Felix Tshisekedi, has called on South Africa's President Cyril Ramaphosa as the SADC chair to ensure a conducive environment for the upcoming elections. Speaking to SABC News in Johannesburg, Tshisekedi also called on the international community to assist with the repatriation of the remains of his father, Etienne, who died in Belgium a year ago. Ntakwanangatane reports. Etienne Chisekedi was Prime Minister of the Republic of Zaire under Mobutu Sese Seko, but he led a campaign against Mobutu and became the main Congolese opposition leader for decades. Chisekedi and his Union for Democracy and Social Progress Party boycotted the 2006 elections on allegations that the poll was fraudulent and rigged. He ran again in 2011 but lost to incumbent Joseph Kabila despite local and international observers saying the election was not credible. Police and Kabila's presidential guards were stationed at every entrance to Chisekedi's residence, placing him under unofficial house arrest. In January 2017, Chisekedi left the DRC to travel to Belgium for medical treatment, but the 84-year-old died a week later in Brussels. His son, Felix Chisekedi, who is now the leader of the UDSP, spoke to SABC News in Johannesburg. He has accused the DRC government of delaying the repatriation of his father's remains. 
That's a very painful uh, uh, situation for me and for my family. Um, it, it's torture. It's, uh, it's very painful. Uh, but, uh, Madame, that shows you the true nature of the regime of Kabila. Uh, it's a regime that is uh, very insensitive to people's feelings, um, to individual rights, um, and to what people really want. They are just insensitive. You know, as long as they're in power, they don't care about anybody else. That's why they're treating people the way they're treating people. Turning to the much-awaited elections in the DRC, now scheduled for December, the UDPS leader says his party hopes that President Ramaphosa, as the SADC chairperson, will assist. Since he has taken over, we've seen a positive change in the position of South Africa vis-à-vis the Congo uh, through SADC. We've seen a lot of change, but very positive, since President Ramaphosa has been at the helm. The DRC awaits the release of Jean-Pierre Bemba, a former warlord and adversary of Congolese President Joseph Kabila, whose conviction for war crimes was overturned by the International Criminal Court last week. But Chisekedi questions the role of the ICC. First, I'm very happy for his family, whom I know personally. I'm very happy for them because they've suffered a lot as a result of his incarceration. My second reaction is that I'm starting to think and question the role of the ICC. How can they keep somebody in jail for 10 years and then just like that, they come and say all the charges have been dropped because there were some, some things. Imagine what he could have done with 10 years of freedom. The government has postponed elections twice and the UN Security Council has raised concerns about the political situation in the DRC. The opposition says it doesn't have confidence in the process. I'm Chakwanangatan in Johannesburg. It's 8.11 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Our lawmakers in Washington have delivered a mixed reaction to U.S. President Donald Trump's historic meeting with Kim Jong-un of North Korea. Some have sharply criticized the agreement signed between the two leaders, saying it lacks critical details. Others have praised the president for moving diplomacy forward. Our Washington correspondent, Harry Horton, tells us more. As President Trump boarded Air Force One in Singapore, Washington was waking up to the news of an agreement he'd signed with Kim Jong-un of North Korea. So we're signing a very important document, pretty comprehensive document. The summit was historic. On that point, almost everyone agreed. But many back home felt the president failed to extract the concessions from Kim the U.S. had long demanded. Here's Democratic Senator Chuck Schumer. What the United States has gained is vague and unverifiable at best. What North Korea has gained, however, is tangible and lasting. Senator Cory Booker, another Democrat, said President Trump failed to properly address human rights concerns. I wouldn't call myself concerned. I'd call myself alarmed. This is a uh, dictator who has been brutal, um, has uh, engaged in vicious acts of repression, uh, and this wasn't part of the conversation, it seems, whatsoever. 
The Pentagon moved quickly to reassure allies of US security commitments in the region after concerns about President Trump's decision to call off so-called war games between American and South Korean forces. Republican Senator Lindsey Graham praised President Trump for meeting with Kim Jong-un, but said he'd be concerned if the U.S. withdrew troops from South Korea. I don't think canceling a war, a war game is going to matter over the arc of time. The one thing that I would violently disagree with is removing our troops. I can't imagine I would vote for any agreement that requires us to withdraw our forces. With peace now firmly on the agenda, Kingston Rafe of the Arms Control Association says it could be difficult for the U.S. to put pressure on North Korea in future discussions. China is unlikely to go to the lengths uh, that it went to previously and up to this point. Um, it's already sent signals that it would like to continue prior economic relations with, with North Korea. Um, so I think uh, it will be hard to build the kind of uh, pressure campaign that the administration was able to, uh, to build during its first uh, year or so um, in office. Without doubt, Washington is far more comfortable discussing diplomacy than military threats. But for President Trump, now comes the hard part, fleshing out the details and proving that this time things really can turn out differently. Harry Horton, SABC News, Washington. Africa's continental free trade area will not work unless proper transport infrastructure is built. As according to Vera Songwe, Executive Secretary for the United Nations Economic Commission for Africa, Songwe says the continent must conquer distances to build a real pan-African movement, one that creates jobs and prosperity. Songwe says to do this, we must develop our ports, rail and airline infrastructure. She was speaking at the annual Africa Rail Conference, which opened in Johannesburg this week. The event this year hosted delegates from 28 African countries with 200 global speakers. Amina Akram reports. In March this year, 44 of the 55 members of the African Union signed the African Continental Free Trade Agreement. This agreement requires members to remove tariffs from 90% of goods, hence allowing free access to commodities, goods and services across the continent. If enforced, the free trade agreement will boost intra-African trade by more than 50%. But United Nations Economic Commission for Africa, Vera Shongwe, has warned that this might not work unless Africa fixes its ailing and poor transport infrastructure. Under the auspices of the African Union, the recently launched African Continental Free Trade Area, the single African air transport market, and the free movement of peoples and other policies are all an attempt to fuel this Pan-African economic integration movement. Africa is conscious of the need to build a better and more efficient infrastructure because the dream of a Pan-African economic movement will not come true if we cannot follow that with better infrastructure in particular without a modernized and seamless transport sector. The Continental Free Trade Area Initiative will not deliver on its promise. South Africa, Kenya and Egypt are the only African countries in the top 50 Global Logistics Index, which measures indices such as infrastructure, rail transport and clearance at ports. Shangwe says although much progress has been made in refurbishing and building new ports on the continent, not much progress has been achieved on the railway side. There are currently 16 landlocked countries in Africa 
and these countries need an efficient rail transport infrastructure. To connect Africa's productive capacities, Africa's innovative youth, Africa's entrepreneurial women, Africa's markets, we must bet on better rail connections from Cape to Cairo and from Dakar to Djibouti. It is clear that economic development in Africa needs an efficient, expanded rail network. The current condition of the existing rail infrastructure and rail rolling stock in many countries is suboptimal. Africa currently has only one kilometer of rail track for every 400 square kilometers of land. The UN says rail wheels help to decongest traffic in heavily populated cities like Dakar. It's also the safest way to move large goods and containers across countries. The UN Secretary says it will be better for African leaders to sign the Luxembourg Protocol, which will make funding and investing in rail infrastructure cheaper. Shongwe says public-private partnerships are needed to fast-track railway projects in Africa. We know that there has been a rebound in economic activity on the continent. However, we know that overall growth on the continent is about 3.6%, but that is not enough to deliver broad-based inclusive growth and poverty reduction that we need. The jobs problem is a collective one which requires collective solutions. That is why there has been a concerted effort by policymakers to create conditions to improve the business environment and finance faster growth. Other speakers at the conference spoke about utilizing new technology and digitizing the African railway network. That report by Amina Akram. South African unions have planned a big demonstration at ESCOM's Megawatt Park offices in Johannesburg on Thursday in protest at the power utility's 0% wage offer. The National Union of Metal Workers of South Africa, NUMSA, and the National Union of Mine Workers, NUM, held a joint media briefing in Kempton Park yesterday to discuss details of their planned pickets. Naleding Mobile has more. While unions have set aside plans for a national shutdown, NUM and NUMSA showed a united front when briefing media about their joint plans to challenge ESCOM's 0% wage increase. Unions have scheduled lunchtime pickets where workers will demonstrate. Ivan Jim is the General Secretary of NUMSA. We will exhaust all options available to us legally before resorting to go on a strike. We have, sh- we have scheduled pickets during lunchtime in different parts of the country where workers will demonstrate they are discussed with ESCOM for their provocative stance. On Thursday, there will be a big demonstration taking place at Megawatt Park during lunch as workers were resolute in our demands. The union's list of demands includes a meeting with the president and the energy minister. Jim explains. Furthermore, we demand an urgent meeting with ESCOM board, the president of the country, Cyril Ramaphosa, and the minister of energy, Jeff Khadebe. We demand that they meet with all three unions with speed to resolve the current impasse between ESCOM and unions and give workers their deserved wage increase. Jim says ESCOM's cash flow problems are perpetuated by a bloated management structure. He says ESCOM roughly has 500 top executives who earn an average income of up to 800,000 rand. Jim says ESCOM's austerity measures are an attack on workers. Both NUMSA and NUM are very clear that we're not part of supporting the austerity measures that are couched within the context of the new dawn. I mean, we were never consulted that the National Treasury will not budget to ensure that ESCOM as a critical institution 
in the center of minerals, energy, and finance complex, which make up South African economy, that it cannot be resourced. The unions also plan to challenge the government's decision to sign the independent power producer contract. Jim says IPPs will cost more than the power already provided by power stations. He says the decision was reckless. So we're flagging that, yes, the issue of the IPPs, its connection basically destroy market sales for ESCOM. And on the other end, immediately, was ESCOM management is doing that, and the board, they support the minister to sign. They are quick to say workers will not get an increase, when in fact their decision to sign IPPs is basically reckless. That was the Secretary General of the National Union of Metal Workers of South Africa, Irvin Jim, ending that report by Naledi Ngobo. This is indeed a joyous night. We are delighted by the overwhelming support for the African National Congress. For the people of South Africa and the world, this is indeed a joyous night for the human spirit. Your help and apathy. This year, 2018, marks 100 years since the birth of South Africa's first democratically elected president, Nelson Kholihlahla Mandela. Join Channel Africa, South Africa's international public service radio station, as we celebrate a centenary of the life and times of Madiba. Join us in a year-long broadcast campaign in honor of Nelson Mandela's legacy through a variety of informative radio programs. Channel Africa, celebrating 100 years of Nelson Mandela from an African perspective. It's 8.22 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. Coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on Channel Africa Radio. According to the South African National Blood Service, SANBS, only one in every 140 people are blood donors. And as a result, the national blood reserves are low. These figures are the primary reason why blood donation drives are held frequently. And new as well as lapsed donors are urged to donate regularly. As we mark National Blood Week, SANBS is aiming to collect over 18,000 units of blood. For more on this drive, we are now joined on the line by the Regional Marketing Manager at the South African National Blood Service, Ivor Hobbs. Ivor, good morning and thank you so much for joining us on Africa Rise and Shine. Good morning. It's great being on air with you. Now, what are some of the major reasons behind South Africa's very low numbers of blood donors? Well, there are various reasons. I mean, uh, we're not that far off from worldwide standards. The World Health Organization recommends that about 1% of the population donates blood. We've got just a little less than that 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 currently donate. We've got about 480,000 blood donors. So that's one of the main reasons that there are very often um, low blood stocks. What also plays a role is uh, during school holidays, a lot of our blood comes from schools and universities. And when the school holidays come... 
we don't collect blood from those uh, institutions. So the demand stays more or less the same, but the the supply run, runs out a little bit. So for us to be sustainable, we need to be on around about five days Group O stock. So at the moment, we're around about three days. So we're okay. But once it drops below two, that's when we're really in trouble. Now, finding out in terms of the people of South Africa, is there a way um, of getting people to understand what blood donations mean and, uh, you know, why there needs to be um, blood donated on a regular basis and where it goes to? Well, the... That is what you've just said is is one of the main things that we're trying to push um, with with most of our campaigns is really to say that one blood donation saves up to three people's lives. It's not just um, you know taken from the donor and given straight to a patient. It's separated into its constituent components: your red blood cells, your plasma, and your platelets, and those are then given to patients with uh, varying needs. The majority of the blood goes to uh, medical treatment for uh, patients who've got cancer, those sort of things. And then also um, the single biggest case where, where blood goes to is women who experience complications during childbirth. So that's where a huge amount of the blood actually ends up going to. So it, it, what's also important, why people need to donate regularly, we can't just go and uh, collect endless supplies on one day and then go and freeze it. Uh, the blood has a certain shelf life. Only the plasma is the, the, is one of the products that we can freeze for up to a year, but your red blood cells only last 42 days and your platelets only last five days. So it's really important that we have that constant supply of people donating blood um, as often as they possibly can. We try and encourage people to do it about four times a year. Now, let's speak about some of the myths and misconceptions um, that people usually talk about or people usually hear about when it comes to um, sharing blood or blood donation. Mm. So there are numerous myths out there ranging from the the fact that why should I donate my blood for free? Why does the SANBS charge for those blood products. So it's more about charging for the services incurred. We're not funded by anyone else. We are totally self-funded. We don't have any subsidies. So we need to make our business sustainable. If you want a qualified person putting in the needle, you need to pay that person. The transportation of the blood, the collecting of the blood, the the processing it into its different uh, components, and then, of course, the extensive testing that it undergoes. Um, from there, it's get, it then gets sent to our blood banks and the hospitals, where it's then uh, checked again uh, against the patient's blood, and all of those processes cost money. So that is what the, the costing is for. We don't make a profit, which is, which is really important, um, and that, that's, a, that's a popular myth that's out there. Another myth is that we uh, don't accept blood from uh, homosexual men. That is not the case at all. Uh, It used to be the case uh, years ago, but that is not the case anymore. As long as people meet the minimum donation criteria, we accept blood from absolutely anybody. And the same goes for a myth that's out there that we don't accept blood or we don't uh, use black people's blood. That is definitely a myth and we accept blood from absolutely everyone and we use it, um, providing obviously that it goes through all the the various processes and that it's, it's tested safely. Um, there are some very dangerous myths out there as well, uh, ranging from if you've got uh, group O blood, you're immune to HIV. Now, that's obviously not the case. So we really want to make sure that um, people are clear that, uh, you know, we 
every unit of blood that is collected um, goes through a very, very rigorous testing process and that you are definitely not immune to, um, to diseases based on your blood type. Now, Ivor, talk to us about the hashtag missing types campaign. What's this about? So it's part of a worldwide campaign, and we're really excited about it, and we've got some really big brands participating in it. Um, so it runs from this Monday. We launched it on, on Monday, the 11th of June, and it'll run through to, to next Monday. We're effectively asking organizations to remove the letters A, B, and O, symbolizing the missing blood types with the same letters, from their logos or, or names on social media and even physically for a week. Um, and... This was launched in the UK a couple of years ago, and since it was launched worldwide, there's been phenomenal success. Even when we've, we've done previously, we, we see a lot of uptake, not only in donations, but also in companies wanting us to come and do blood drives with them. So we hope that this little disappearing act that we uh, want, want corporate to participate in will, uh, you know, weave a special kind of magic where we can encourage more than 1% of South Africans to give blood regularly. Now, SANBS has aimed to get more than 3,000 people per day across the country to donate blood um, during National Blood Donor Week. How's that drive going so far? So far, it's, it's, it's going really well. But what's interesting is it's not just during this week where we uh, need 3,000 units. We need about 3,300 units every single day, um, you know, regardless of whether it's blood week. This is across throughout the course of the year. In the course of a year, we need around about 824,000 units or blood donations to take place. And with a pool of only about 480,000 people, we need to make sure that those guys not only come back, but that we also encourage new people um, to take up the cause as well. Ivor, all the best for your your uh, blood drive don uh, blood donation drive campaign, and uh, let's hope that you'll reach those numbers and more. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much, and we really want to thank each and every corporate that's come on board with uh, the Missing Types campaign. We've seen some fabulous stuff on our social media pages. Please go check it out on sanbs.org.za. The links are there, and there's really cool stuff. Thank you, Ivo. That's Ivo Hobbs, Regional Marketing Manager at the South African National Blood Service, joining us on the line. It is 8.30 Central African time, and Anne Musa is up next with the headlines. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musan. The headlines, the International Criminal Court rules that former Congolese Vice President Jean-Pierre Bemba be released immediately. Equatorial Guinea's President Teodoro Obiang Ngema calls for national dialogue after a failed coup and a crackdown on the opposition. And the World Health Organization cautions against declaring victory too early in the DRC's Ebola epidemic, despite encouraging signs that it may be brought under control. Those are the stories making headlines. South Africa, it's here. The inaugural Soweto International Jazz Festival 2018. It's a global celebration of Soweto from Thursday, June 14th to Sunday, June 17th at the state-of-the-art Soweto Theatre Festival Complex. 
Win tickets to Soweto International Jazz Festival 2018. Just answer the following simple question. Name two languages that Channel Africa broadcasts in. Name two languages that Channel Africa broadcasts in. People with albinism plead with the public to treat them with respect, not harm or kill them. This was the message at a candle lighting event to raise awareness about the plight of people with albinism at Emalacheni in South Africa's Mpumalanga province. As the world commemorates International Albinism Day today, the Emalacheni local municipality, NGOs and advocacy groups for people with albinism are holding a series of meetings meetings against the attack on people with albinism. Eric Lubisi reports. The reason why I am so emotional, I was just asking God, why didn't you take me in her place? Tapsila was only 13 years old. Our sin is this skin of ours. There is nothing special about us, but because people are lazy to work, they decide to make something and form something against us. A passionate plea for their right to life and dignity to be respected. Trifinan Lapo with albinism says people like her suffer all sorts of discrimination. She says they are called names and hunted like animals because of their skin condition. She has called for harsher sentences to the four suspects accused of killing Kapside Shabani with albinism for multi-purposes. Thirteen-year-old Shabani and her one-year-old cousin were kidnapped at their home in Emalacheni earlier this year. Shabani's body was later found with missing body parts. Nslapo has called for the end to the beliefs that some people have about those with albinism. We are saying to you, stop killing us. Can it end with Gapsile? It was not supposed to happen, but it has happened. We have allowed a stranger in our city to dominate and kill us. So we plead with you. <laughs> to stop killing us. It ends now. And every time you look at a person with albinism in Amalacheni, just remember that not in your name that another person with albinism will ever be killed for multi-rituals. Recently, a number of attacks on people with albinism for their body parts were reported in the province. In another incident, a board of a person with albinism was stuck up and mutilated at Pinari near Bombela. The Emalachian municipality has committed to continue with the awareness campaigns. The mayor of Emalachian, Lina Malachi, says the municipality will give support to the Shaban family and those with albinism. The family is grieved because we can't bury the children and it is painful for the family. That is why we continue to support them. That's why we continue to say to them, we are with you. We know it's not easy, but with the support that the Emalachian community is giving and all the stakeholders, we believe they are receiving comfort. On Tuesday, the community of Emalachian with some organizations from Swaziland gathered at the Oshukbora Gate as part of the awareness campaign. Togozanim Sibi believed to be the mastermind behind the kidnapping and killing of Shaban and her cousin, 
is from Swaziland. Some of the campaigns include distribution of pamphlet to motorists and door-to-door in communities. I'm Eric Lubisi at Forsman in Emalahleni. It is 8.36 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Are you interested in generating business leads, networking, forming new partnerships and igniting growth opportunities? Then you will be interested in the Vision 2030 Summit. Themed Skills, Economic Growth and Investment, the summit takes place from the 20th to the 21st of June at Emperor's Palace in Ekruleni, South Africa. Speakers include Bonang Mohale, Tsidiso Matuna, Nomalungalogina, Sai Mamabolo, Kanyisele Koyama and Risenga Malulega. Space is limited, but there is still time to book seats now at vision2030.co.za. That's vision2030.co.za. Or you can join Channel Africa on both days when we will be broadcasting live from the Vision 2030 Summit. Channel Africa bringing you the African perspective. It's 8.39 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. People with albinism face multiple forms of discrimination worldwide. Albinism is still profoundly misunderstood socially and medically. The physical appearance of persons with albinism is often the object of many beliefs and myths influenced by superstition, which foster their marginalization and social exclusion. The spotlight is today on people with albinism as the global community marks the International Albinism Awareness Day, a day set aside to call for an end to the brutal brutalities against people with albinism. Now to speak to us about his experience, we are joined on the line by Alain Matsolo, an aspiring young South African musician with albinism. Line, thank you so much for joining us on Africa Rise and Shine and a very good morning to you. Good morning, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. Now, Line, how would you describe your journey um, growing up in South Africa as a person with albinism? Uh, to start with, I'd like to greet everyone who's listening. And then secondly, I'd like to thank the opportunity for, for I'd like to thank you for giving this opportunity to talk about what I feel about this thing of albinism. Uh, firstly, uh, my journey when I was growing up, it was, it was very, very, very hard because now even if you are going out of the street, just outside of the gate, then someone calls you with a name, this kind of that. But I've grown up and I thank God that I'm still strong today and to teach both parties uh, uh, people with chocolate brown skin and people living with alpinism. Now, Line, 
has there ever been a point in your life um, that just that just that opening statement is, gives us the chills um, and we we think about the stories that we hear and come across all the time has there ever been a point in your life where you felt your security and and life were at risk not 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 exactly but you you will come across people uh, telling you that uh, like you must not uh, uh, walk at night you must not go in these places like this because they take people like you and do whatever they do about uh, with them so when uh, when i grew up i had those things but i never stopped uh, going in those places because i thought if it's going to happen then it was going to happen. But where I grew up in Davidson, there was no such a thing when you grew up. Now, what is it? How, what sort of experience, or in terms of uh, how you feel when you hear of stories? Not long ago, there were two young children who were taken from their home in in the Bumalanga province, and uh, you know their bodies were later found. And what does that do to you as an individual with albinism? Uh, I, to me, ma'am, it's, 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 it's painful because uh, this, this uh, two children, are, they're, they're both people like any, any, any other people. They, they, they both have, have parents. It's not like uh, we are kind of people that, I don't know, maybe they take us as if we are aliens or something. Because now this, this, this thing, is, to me, is contradicting because they say uh, uh, we are a curse. But at the very same time, they take us and say they're going to do multi with us so that they can have luck. But I don't understand the, 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 the motive behind those two things. How can they take someone to make love, but at the same time you're saying it's a curse? The only thing that is happening is I think we, we need to teach people that the only thing that we don't have is only pigments. But we can think like them. We have the same red blood like them. We, 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 we too, we sleep at night. We wake up in the morning. I, 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 I hope you understand me. No, definitely, definitely, we do get that point. Now, Lan, in terms of, um, uh, you know, attacks and discrimination of people with albinism, do you think enough is, is being done in terms of educating uh, people in, on what albinism is? And, and as you say, it's just a lack of uh, pigmentation. Do you think enough is being done from um, young children to adults? I don't think enough has, has been done, ma'am, because when I, I, I grew up, obviously, uh, they do uh, campaigns or they do groups, but you will find that uh, even us, uh, people with albinism, we can sit together, maybe 10 to 20 of us, but you can see that some of them, they are not comfortable seeing the same person with the same color sitting with him. It seems like they still have that stigma or maybe they don't have self-esteem like other people. So the problem is you can do campaigns, but Let's say you do a campaign in a mall, and then the sun is hot. And then no one will go there and listen while the sun is hot. People just pass, and then they don't come, and then that is why there's no knowledge. That is why I decided when I grew up, 
like uh, in 2011, 2012, that is why I decided, let me do a, a, a track that even if uh, 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 there's no campaign, but that track can play everywhere in South Africa. It can play in the radio so that it, the people can hear the message. Because one thing I know is if the track is going to play, they'll want to know uh, who is uh, uh, doing that track, and then they, maybe they call you for an interview like we are doing now. And then I'm going to explain that the track is all about this and this and this and this. And then people maybe they'll start understanding what's going to happen. And then if maybe I'm going to perform at the place, then they hire me to perform. Then before maybe I do the trip, I, uh, I, I, I tell them about our condition and teach them. Because the only thing that you can do is not fight with people, but at least you teach than fighting. Now, line very quickly, we have run out of time, but uh, I just want to find out how has your music been received and are there challenges you face in the music industry? No, uh, on the music industry so far, because I'm doing my first album, and then I did the first track. Uh, the first track is called Jealous Town. Okay, it's a, it's a track. Uh, uh, it's a dancing track, but it, 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 it has a message inside the chorus and the verses. So I did it because I grew up as a pansola, so I liked Kwaito. So I thought then to do a, a song that is too emotional is going to make people feel... So I, I, I thought, okay, let me do a track that will... Will 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 send a message, but while dancing, so that we can be happy and be jolly at the very same time. I don't know how is it going to go, but so far I've done eight tracks, left it only two tracks. Some of the tracks they have other messages, like uh, there is a track that I call Life. It's all about life. They'll hear it on the radio, and like. Yeah, but at the end of the day, I can see that uh, as alpinism, I saw something. Even if I'm going to be that top musician and have money and drive Lamborghinis, they're still going to call me with those names. Mm. Like, for instance, they say, do you know that uh, a guy who's driving a Lamborghini? No, the Alpino one. Mm. I don't know why they must describe us like that. They call us Alpinos. Because even like, the people, they don't want uh, 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 wise to call them kaffers, mm. isn't it? Mm. Line, we'll leave it there for now and we'll leave it there for now. Unfortunately, we have run out of time. But as you say, education, education, education. Thank you so much for joining us. That's Line Matsolo, an aspiring young South African musician living with albinism. Our economics update up next with Tabisolo Hoku. Good morning. South Africa's Mineral Resources Minister Gwede Mandashe says Sibanya's Stillwater Mine west of Johannesburg should be held accountable for the death of four mine workers on Monday. The miners succumbed to heat and gas exposure. Mandashe says the mine was reckless in allowing the miners to go into an area that wasn't ventilated. It's alleged that a shift manager forced workers to go on underground at the mine at Western Area. Mandasha says the latest incident has brought a challenge to his department. The current Mine Health and Safety Act, it shows clearly that it doesn't assist in curbing this uh, incident. When we ask questions, particularly myself, there were no straight answers. He still had to refer us to other line of management to answer those questions. 
but we believe that the inquiry will dig deeper in order to see whether there was a flood of procedures by this company. By the look of things, we believe that this management must account. Meanwhile, London-based mining company Gemfields has announced that last week's auction in Singapore of rough rubies from its mine in the northern Mozambican district of Mantapua has raised a company record of 71.8 million US dollars. Of the 86 parcels of rubies available at the auction, 82 were sold, fetching an average price of $122 per carat. This was the 10th auction of rubies from Montepur Ruby Mining Limited, held since 2014 of June. In total, they have generated $407 million dollars According to the company, the consistency of supply and the reliability of the Gemfields grading system continues to be well received by buyers, given that it reduces risk, improves manufacturing efficiencies and aids their ability to meet the demand for larger orders. Africa must conquer distances to build a real pan-African movement, one that creates jobs and prosperity. That's according to the Executive Secretary for the United Nations Economic Commission for Africa, Vera Songwe. She says Africa's continental free trade area will not work unless proper transport infrastructure is built. Songwe was speaking at the annual Africa Rail Conference in Johannesburg, South Africa this week. Amina Akram reports. In March this year, 44 of the 55 members of the African Union signed the African Continental Free Trade Agreement. This agreement requires members to remove tariffs from 90% of goods, hence allowing free access to commodities, goods and services across the continent. If enforced, the free trade agreement will boost intra-African trade by more than 50%. The African Tax Administration Forum programs on transfer pricing for its member states have generated roughly 160 million US dollars in revenue since 2016. Through these programs at the African Tax Administration Forum touched on specific matters under international taxation and worked on enabling legislation with efforts to close gaps that would otherwise be exploited negatively to evade tax. The US dollar trades at 9.98 to Botswana Pula. It's at 10.11 in Zambia. In BRICS currencies, the US dollar trades at 3.70 Brazilian real, at 62.84 Russian ruble, and at 67.44 Indian rupee. It's at 6.40 Chinese yuan, and at 13.21 to the South African rand. It's also trading at 74 pence to the British pound, and at 84 cents to the euro. Gold, $1,295. Platinum eight nine six dollars an ounce. So the price of Brent crude oil is at seventy five dollars sixty three cents a barrel. I'm Tabi Solohoku, and you're listening to your favorite channel. Figure. For me, I feel like it's too quiet. The World Cup is starting tomorrow in Russia. No, the the mood, the fever. Where is the fever? Where's the mood? No, no, no. no, Unless I'm missing something. Yeah, no, you're missing something, I think. No, Figida. I've spoken to a number of people about this, and everyone feels the same way. It is so quiet. So the question is, 
are the politics uh, trumping the World Cup? I, I don't think so. I think they, those are, <laughs> are, are, are supporters of a different sporting code. Yeah, I, we've been we've been overwhelmed with Russia and overwhelmed with the preparation, the teams themselves, uh, Neymar, the Mbappes, and on and all, all and all others. And uh, today it's it's the day when we get to know who's going to host the 2026, and then the fever begins. Well, tomorrow is D Day. What what time does it start? Where when is the opening uh, launch the, and everything? The opening ceremony, ceremony will, will start around about three o'clock, and the match it's around about four o'clock. We're looking forward to it, as yeah. you say. Hopefully, we'll we'll get into the fever. Give us an update. Two hundred and one member associations of FIFA vote for the 2026 World Cup's successful bid today in Moscow, Russia, and do not expect any confederation to vote as a bloc. President of the Mexican Football Association, Dicheo Di Maria, comments on coming to the voting day with a good report from the FIFA World Cup evaluation team. The evaluation and uh, we got good results, but uh, we need to keep it, uh, going through the world. Our goal is to talk with every MA and show them what we want to do and what we want to do together because it's not only United States, Canada or Mexico uh, united to do this uh, bid, but we need everybody to have a successful World Cup. So our goal is to meet everybody. That's what we did today. We are very glad that to have the opportunity to speak with all the people today. And hopefully the 13th of June, uh, we have the relative uh, beneplus of the whole uh, Congress to, to have this uh, great opportunity and responsibility to put together a World Cup in 2026. And a group of 14 Russian girls will act as, yes, Ball girls in the opening match of the World Cup on Thursday, the first all-female group to do so. The girls aged 13 to 16 from Agriz, a small town of 19,000 people some 800 kilometers east of Moscow, were selected by the Russian national team after making a sponsored shortlist of inspiring entrants to a national junior football tournament. The 14 girls who play football for a team in the Russian region of Tatarstan will have the eyes of the world on them as they return the ball in the Group A match between Russia and Saudi Arabia at the Luznik Stadium in Moscow. In rugby news, the junior Springboks did not have the technical intelligence to emulate their senior counterparts by overturning a massive deficit as they were dumped out of the under-20 World Championships, losing 32-21 to England on Tuesday. The junior box will play New Zealand in their playoff for the bronze medal after the baby blacks lost 16-7 to host France. And seven 2018 World leaders and 10 world champions will converge on the eastern Czech city of Ostrava for the 57th Golden Spike and IAAF World Challenge meeting tonight. Indeed, hot names of early season standouts appear throughout the main program at the city's Metzki Stadium, which in September will play host the IAAF Continental Cup. That's just sport news this hour. Channel Africa brings you wall-to-wall coverage of the 2018 FIFA World Cup Finals in Russia. 
Visit our dedicated World Cup page on www.channelafrica.org.za for in-depth coverage which includes previews, reviews, analysis, breaking news and podcasts of latest interviews. We will also bring you the very latest news from Russia with our Nigerian correspondent Tony Ubani and the BBC's reporters in our daily hourly sports bulletins and on the Africa at Play sports show on Friday, Saturday and Sunday from 5pm to 6pm Central African time. Channel Africa, your home of the 2018 FIFA World Cup Finals. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories, in Africa rise and shine at the Sawa DRC opposition leader calls on SADC to ensure successful elections. Trump-Kemp summit draws mixed reaction in the U.S. and events to mark Albinism Awareness Day get underway across the world. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. From myself, Lulu Gabu, producers Pumuto Ramagaza and Jane Rambutata, technical producer Mario Edwards and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.org, WhatsApp on 277-6300-3327 or tweet us at Rise Africa. Are taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa is Davido with a track titled Assurance.